It's been good to be uh, with you preaching through the book of Judges, and we, we really did the beginning, middle, and now the end of Samson's life, and I'm eager to, to preach that to you this morning, God's Word. But, but let's go in prayer before we open the Word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you every time we get the privilege of opening your Word and reading it and hearing it, and meditating on it, and hearing it preached, and considering how we might live in light of it. Father, help us to not take for granted any of these opportunities. I pray now, Lord, for your strength to proclaim your Son Christ, the gospel, the hope of salvation that we have in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for greater light and understanding I pray, God, that you, by your Spirit, would do the work only you can do. Uh, Help us to be attentive and obedient to what you say. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of the the famous magician, Harry Houdini? He lived from 1874 to 1926. Harry Houdini... So I know that by the fact that he died in 1926, no one in this room knows him, no one listening, and no one saw him perform live, even if you've seen some videos online. But most people know he's a mu- uh, not a musician, a magician. But many people don't know what made him escalate in fame so quickly and even what his signature act was. It was fascinating. I was researching that this week. He got his start working in a circus. He was singing and dancing. But what he really wanted to do between shows was perfect his craft at picking handcuffs and locks. And he would spend hours and hours becoming an expert in picking locks. In fact, one newspaper, one story tells that he would ride into town. He would offer anybody in the town, as he went from city to city, he would offer anyone $100 if they could give him some handcuffs that he was not able to break out of. And his audacity was strong. He would even go to the local police station and break out of their handcuffs. This was at the end of the late 1800s. In the year 1900, he goes over to Europe. He breaks out of Scotland Yard as he's chained to a pole there. And he does all kinds of feats where he would be nailed into a wooden crate and thrown into a river and he would emerge He became an escape artist, a sensation. And then he came back to the U.S., and his fame swelled even more. In fact, picture this. Picture a man hanging from a construction crane in New York City, and he's hanging from his ankles, and he's hanging upside down in a straitjacket. That's Harry Houdini. And he would get out of the straitjacket in front of large crowds, and he was wise. He would do this right in front of the newspaper headquarters so they would be sure to write a paper about him. Even beyond this, he was a sensation. He even came up with that that famous water torture. You know, you've heard of the, the Chinese water torture trap. He's upside down again in a tank of water, uh, and he escapes from that at the last minute. What is it about daring escapes that would have made people back in the 1910s and the 1920s so mesmerized with him? What is it about you and me that we get captivated when we see a daring escape? 
where it looks like everything is about to collapse on this person and then they emerge from it. Why is that so fascinating? I think if you're an intellectual person, you love those kind of moments because in your mind, you're trying to figure out, okay, how is he getting out? Are those real locks? Is he really picking a lock? How, how is he doing that? If you're an emotionally driven person, you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's, he's not going to make it. And then he does, and you get this emotional release of the tension. So different types of people are drawn to these feats of escape. But I actually think there's something spiritual that many people don't notice The Christians can notice. There's something spiritual about great escapes. Have you ever thought about that? Someone going against all the odds, making it out alive. It's spiritual. It's spiritual because one of the most fundamental realities of the universe is that you and I are born in sin, loving our sin, And the Scriptures tell us, even in the Gospel of John, that the wrath of God remains on us already. We are all trapped. There is no great escape from the perfect, good justice of God. We're all guilty. But the reason we love great escapes and scenes like that, the reason Harry Houdini was even able to get famous, the reason people paid him any attention at all, is because there's something deep down in us that actually whispers to the gospel of maybe we can escape. Maybe escape is possible. That's true. As Christians, we know that's true. We can't escape the wrath of God, but Jesus Christ himself, who's no escape artist, Jesus takes the wrath of God, absorbs all the perfect punishment that God would dish out on sin. He takes it upon himself so that if you unite yourself to him by faith, you do escape hell. You escape the wrath of God. Not because you outsmarted God. Not because it was a game or a show. But because Jesus substitutes himself in your place. That's the great escape that I hope you've come to know in your life. Houdini was, was masterful at escapes. And in our passage today, Samson, who is known for his strength, really shows off this other side skill that we didn't know he had. He's a great escape artist too. And I want to show you how from God's word, Samson keeps escaping again after again, time and time, these ambushes where he's tied up. But it all has spiritual purpose. I want to show you that. Turn with me to to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. God's word tells us this. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts 
and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And as she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, wove them into the web, she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. 
But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one side and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. The main point of this chapter that we just read, it's simple. The way Samson is living mirrors the way Israel is living. The way Samson is living mirrors the way Israel is living. He disregards holiness. He doesn't take temptation seriously. He does whatever is right in his own eyes. That's what the nation is doing. He's not some subset who's a different type of Israelite, except for the fact that he's supposed to be this holy deliverer, this judge, who crushes their enemies, who is a Nazarite. In other words, he's devoted to God. But he lives just like the nation. And God is teaching us something about Samson here, but he's also teaching us something about the wider picture, the nation as a whole during the book of Judges. And most importantly, God is teaching us something about himself and how he works, how he gets glory to himself. I pray that we would rescript our lives by, by what we study this morning. What an incredible chapter that we just read. What an incredible chapter. This is the final moments of Samson's life, and the, the people who are living at this time, they didn't know this was the last moments of his life. Remember, it said he judged Israel 20 years. Other judges in the book, some lived, some judged for 40 years. What would it be like to, to live during this time? What would the, the newspapers be saying, the, the Twitter feeds, what you see on Instagram, would people be there taking pictures of what Samson's doing on Facebook? What would the gossip be like? 
I think the, one of the best ways to walk through this chapter is to give you what the news headlines would have said after each one of these moments. There's really four news headlines. These are the four sections of this sermon because they match with the sections, the structure of the chapter. So here's what the Philistine Daily Times or the Israelite Herald Leader, these newspapers, this, this is what they would have been saying, okay? Four headlines. Number one, the gates go missing in Gaza. That's front page news right there. The gates go missing in Gaza. This is verses one through three. Headline number two, yet another great escape. Front page news, imagine it, all bold letters, all caps. Yet another great escape, and you got this picture of, of Samson running off, and you've got a picture of the bowstrings and the ropes just laying on the floor. This is verses 4 through 14. Newspaper headline number three, it would say this, captured, exclamation point. Samson is bound and blinded. Captured. Samson is bound and blinded. This is verses 15 through 22. And then the fourth news headline that any good Israelite sipping their coffee would would wake up and see would be, number four, Dagon's party is crushed. Someone crashed Dagon's party. Verses 23 through 31. Let's walk through these these headlines, get a feel for what it was like as these events unfolded, and I hope that you would see what God is up to in the midst of all this. It actually has relevance for today, our lives now. As we saw last week in Romans 15.4, everything written in former days wasn't just to entertain you. It was written for your instruction, that you would have encouragement, endurance, hope. And that's what we have here. So that first headline, the gates go missing in Gaza. If you were to read that news story, here's what the core of the story would reveal, and here's the theological point in this first section, verses 1 through 3. The core of that news story, the the reporter would let you know, Samson does whatever's right in his own eyes. Samson does whatever is right in his own eyes. Look there with me again at verse 1. Where does he go? He goes to Gaza. Why? Is he going to make trade and make profit? Gaza was on the central area of the, the Philistia area, but it was on the coast. So he's, he's leaving where the 12 tribes of Israel are, and he's going right to the heart of enemy territory. As we'll see at the end of this chapter, he's back in Gaza, bound. Why does he go to Gaza? We actually see before verse 1 is over, it's to visit a prostitute. We know that he didn't go into town announcing that he was there because the men have to say, hey, Samson's here. So the very fact that he would even go down to Gaza shows us right off the bat, he's just doing whatever's right in his own eyes. He's not going down there to lead a military campaign. Look what happens. Verse 1 again. He goes to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he thought, I'm a Nazarite, and he went the other way. Nope. He saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Again, Samson does whatever's right in his own eyes, and the author 
is doing this on purpose. You think, why, why are we starting off the story this way? Why is God telling us this? Well, the way chapter 14 started, he saw this woman of the Philistines and said, get her as my wife to his parents. The way chapter 15 started, he's going back down to the Philistine areas to his wife because he wants to go into her. He's just driven by whatever lust and cravings his own eyes have. This has been his agenda over and over again. He just does his own thing. He's acting a lot like Israel. But then he pulls up the gates in the middle of the night. We're not told what caused him to awaken at midnight. Maybe he felt convicted by, by the Lord. What are you doing here, Samson? You're far from your own people. You're with the prostitute. Get out of here. And instead of making a commotion and asking for the men of the city to unlock all the gates and open the gates and let him leave, he pulls up the bars of the gates, presumably puts them on his shoulders, and he drags them 40 miles. That's how far it is. If you're wondering, okay, what's the significance of this? He carried them to the hill in front of Hebron. Well, he basically just cuts a straight line from the Mediterranean coast inland all the way to Israel's territory in Hebron, 40 miles. And this is all uphill, 40 miles. I don't know about you, but this summer, I've been trying to keep my grass kind of green. It's been a challenge. I've pretty much given up, so I've just put the water hose next to some trees that I want to survive. But in the midst of bringing my water hose out there, I saw some weeds that they were sucking up all the water. So you know what I thought I would do? Pull up the weeds. And I'm trying to pull up some weeds, and you know what this is like. Some of those weeds are a lot deeper than you think, and you just pull the top of it off. And if you take it personal, you go back to that weed, you do everything you can to grab the weed, and you start digging around it, and you, you pull as hard as you can to get that weed up. Samson is not pulling weeds. He pulls up huge iron bars and gates. Imagine this feat of strength. It doesn't say here that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him to do this, but clearly this is supernatural. To lift up these gates, these doors, and carry them 40 miles. What a feat of strength. If we leave this headline and go on to the second, it would, it would seem like just an entertaining story if we went on to the next headline. Yet again, another escape. Before we leave that news story, that, that moment, was there anything for our lives there? Was it just kind of a fun, cute footnote, again, of how strong he is, how he can escape? Well, I think there's, there's something to be said about Samson doing whatever's right in his own eyes. Even by pulling up the gates and going 40 miles, it's further proof that he does what's right in his own eyes. What do you mean by that? Well, when a city loses its doors and gates, it's wide open now for attack. Its defenses are vulnerable. Does Samson then lead a charge, rally the troops to go back down to Gaza and destroy the city, knowing they have no gates anymore? Nope. He just carries the gates to the top of the hill, leaves them there, maybe to boast about what he's just done. He's still doing whatever's right in his own eyes. The fact that he would pull up these gates and go to Gaza and visit an immoral woman, 
It's just like the nation of Israel. They don't have a battle strategy, a plan to go attack their enemies. They just kind of react in the moment to whatever's happening. There's some application for our lives, though, in this story before we leave it. And here it is. Is there any area of your life that you're roaming around like Samson, doing whatever is right in your own eyes? Do you see the danger of that? For him right here, it's all started with sexual sin, his lusts. Here are four things that happen briefly. I'll just spit these out in a quick bullet points. Four things that happen from his sexual sin in this first moment that really applies to any type of sinning that you might be doing. Look at what happened. He went to Gaza. So his sin pulled him away from God's people. It isolated him far from God's people. Secondly, it pulled him away from God's agenda. He doesn't go there to scout out the city, how he might destroy it because he was raised up as a military judge. He goes there and he's distracted by his own sin. So, so it isolates him from God's people, one. Number two, it takes his eyes off God's agenda. Number three, it automatically doesn't get any better after 20 years. This sin that he's doing. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 make it clear. His sin is not automatically improving. He's not getting more holy just with the passage of time. I don't know about you or me. Sometimes we think, man, when will this struggle end? When will this besetting sin kind of leave? If we're not careful, we'll start to believe the lie that just the passing of time, a few more years, will make it end. Samson, we're here in the 20th year of his life, and he's same old sins, just as strong. He's going after women. Fourthly, it, it creates occasions for our own harm, our sin. Because he went after his sin, this gave the enemy an opportunity to ambush him. It's true in your life as well. Sin creates opportunities for our harm, even when we're unaware. So if you want to be the type of Christian who stays near God's people in fellowship, who stays clearly focused on God's agenda for your life, a type of Christian who doesn't wait for the passing of time to try to get a little bit more holy, a Christian who doesn't really walk around with an illusion that no harm can come through my sin. If you want to be that type of Christian, you have to live the reverse of Samson here. You have to live not doing what's right in your own eyes, but constantly refreshing, doing a system software reset in your mind, what is God's agenda so that you won't do right in your own eyes. Well, that's all from that first headline, the gates go missing in Gaza. 